Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Frank Davis and John Serma discussing the Alec Baldwin Rust movie sets, accidental shooting of the director of photography in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a couple of years ago. Uh, in our last episode, we talked about a number of issues relating to that situation. And Frank and I are going to talk a little bit more about that situation today and explore some additional avenues. This is not the first time somebody's been shot on a movie set. And it happens, you know, fortunately not with that great a frequency, but, you know, can you talk about some of the other cases that we know of where folks have been shot on movie sets or, or otherwise killed? Yeah, well, that's what I was interested in, in saving actually for our next podcast because some of those other uh, incidents uh, resulted in um, in citations under standards other than the general duty clause, and I think that opens the door to a broader discussion. So, yes, indeed, that th- there have been instances where, where people have have been um, injured or killed on movie sets and. What I might invite a conversation about right now, though, is if we were to focus on other industries for a little bit, because, uh, you know, we we see that while this is certainly one of the most popular cases in America right now involving this movie set uh, out in New Mexico, criminal charges to movie companies do tend to be rare. We see criminal charges in other general industry and construction arenas much more frequently. Is there, with respect to criminal charges in those other industries, you know, my experience has been, you know, in particular as relates to emphasis programs, whether they're NEPs or REPs or even local emphasis programs, you know, that, that a lot of times the criminal citations flow out of cases that are subject of those emphasis programs. Electrocutions, falls, trenching incidents, uh, PSM incidents, etc. Is that your experience? PSM, isn't that just a paperwork standard? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You'd have to have a pretty tragic paperwork incident, I think. But yeah, for me, it's a chicken or an egg thing, right? Uh, OSHA's almost required, almost mandated to go and inspect when there's uh, an injury related to an emphasis program subject. So electrocutions, falls, trenching, uh, amputation hazards, those are emphasis program standards uh, or emphasis programs issued from the national office that they're always going to come out and inspect. And so uh, I, I, I would suggest there's probably a higher incidence of those inspections just in general, maybe that don't lead even to a willful citation, certainly don't lead to criminal referrals, but there's a higher incidence of those. I mean, you hear us always do what what are the top, you know, the top issues that are cited regularly and, and falls is often the top in construction, Uh, lockout, tagout, stemming from amputations. uh, That's often the top in general industry. 
And so, yeah, I agree with you. If, if you've got a, a, a national emphasis program uh, violation, the odds are you'll get more significant negative consequences from failure to comply with those than you might from maybe a fire extinguisher standard, right? Although, interestingly enough, with respect to the fire extinguisher standard, to your point with the rust case, somehow fire extinguishers were an issue there. So maybe that was the thing that caused the tipping point in the decision and charging Alec Baldwin criminally at Doubt no, it, there's knows. no way. It was it was it was other than serious and no penalty amount. It was it was all about uh, that willful citation for him. Sure, sure. So you know, a lot of the things that you talked about with regard to the emphasis programs were things that relate to you know kind of the mobile work sites, you know, construction excavations. I guess those are kind of tied together. You know, a lot of electrocutions happen in the field as opposed to, to in a facility. Are there places that, uh, or are there areas in kind of the fixed locations that OSHA has a tendency to find willful violations and, um, you know, that those, whether they lead to, to criminal penalties or not, um, you know, involve some exposure that an employer might have to criminal liability? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, it, it happens frequently when we get these types of citations that are that, that are in fixed locations like a manufacturing facility. Uh, we've got one that's current and pending out in uh, out in Alabama now, for instance. We don't, but there is one currently pending out there that involved 48 uh, alleged willful violations of the lockout tagout standard. And th- this was a case that built up over years, um, allegedly, uh, I say allegedly, but uh, the news report suggests that they'd been cited multiple times for, for the same or similar type event. And, and when you see somebody get cited for 48 separate willful violations, following a fatality, that, that's usually an indicator that uh, there, there have been some ongoing problems at that facility. Uh, or at least that OSHA had perceived there were some ongoing problems at that facility. Uh, and and so uh, one of these cases that I'm referring to uh, involved these repeated citations uh, and then multiple willful violations. Uh, and in order to try to um, um, try to get more of the employer's attention, as I'm sure what uh, OSHA w- would argue in that case, in order to get more attention, they went ahead and they made a criminal referral uh, to the Department of Justice uh, that that took up the criminal referral and made this allegation after an employee got got um, injured in a robotic control room uh, that wasn't properly locked out. Hey, you raised a, a, and I want to ask about your own word. You talked about repeat, uh, not in the context of repeat violations or repeat citations, but um, talking about the word repeat in that context, uh, are repeat citations ever the basis in your experience of a criminal referral? Again, no. The ones that I've seen, the cases that I've seen all stem from willful, where they're identifying employer indifference to an alleged hazard. Uh, And again, that employer indifference goes to the the, the negligence that they want to use in state criminal charges. And it has to be a willful under the federal standard in order to 
to be able to make that criminal referral to the Department of Justice. We talked about you know some of the national emphasis programs and those citations uh, arising out of those national emphasis programs. I, I shouldn't say national emphasis programs, uh, resulting in willful citations and then subsequent criminal prosecutions. My understanding is that relatively recently, and, and most employers are, are, are familiar with the Respiratory Protection Standard 1910-134, there was a willful violations of the Respiratory Protection Standard, Permit Required Confined Space Entry Standard 1910-146, that led to a uh, criminal prosecution. Could you explain to the audience a little bit about that case and kind of how that ended up in criminal proceedings? So it, it, this occurred up in Pennsylvania where an employee was making an entry, as you say, into a, into a tank, a uh, permit required confined space. And while inside, the employee was wearing uh, the required respirator, the respirator the company had identified. But the confined space that the employee entered didn't have sufficient oxygen. And so the employee succumbed to, to a lack of oxygen, it was, he was uh, asphyxiated and, and passed away during that entry. And OSHA came in, took a look at, at several items, but one was the 1910-134 standard regarding respiratory protection. And OSHA determined that uh, the employee wasn't using the, the right uh, respirator uh, and cited the employer for not identifying and requiring the use of the right respirator. And as you know, under the respiratory protection standard, uh, you've got to have a written program. You've got to have respirators that address the specific hazard in the workplace. You've got to have training uh, and the employee has to understand and use the proper uh, respiratory protection. And in this case, uh, OSHA concluded that those elements were missing and they issued Ultimately, the, the initial citation was willful in nature and was in the amount in excess of $550,000. That was negotiated down in subsequent negotiations with the employer. But at the same time, because there was a, an alleged willful violation of a specific OSHA standard, the respiratory protection standard, that led to the fatality of an employee, that OSHA office made a referral to the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice levied criminal charges against that employer under the, the federal statute, uh, federal criminal statute. Ultimately, the employer pleaded guilty, uh, and I haven't seen what the, what the sentencing will be for that employer yet. But it, as you know, it's a maximum penalty of $500,000 fine plus uh, up to five years probation um, for the company. And I say the company, I'd be showing you air quotes because obviously it's not the company that'll be on probation. They'll choose an individual, a management individual that will have to serve that probationary period. Well, don't they put some companies on probation where basically there's a lot of kind of corporate oversight that's administered by somebody at the federal level? I don't know if it's necessarily the attorney general's office or you know some sort of uh, extension of the Bureau of Prisons, but I thought, you know, like with some of the financial crimes type prosecutions that they did in fact put some of those companies on probation to make sure that, you know, they did the right things going forward. Is that not the same in this type of setting? Uh, well, it's not a financial crime, right? This is a violation of federal criminal statute that leads to a, a, an employee's fatality. And 
Uh, in all the cases I've seen, they hold the individual responsible. Now, they might have had a different plea deal in that case uh, that resulted in a different ultimate ruling, but I haven't seen the final ruling yet. Well, let me back up. And, and, and you know, for our audience, you know, there are what we refer to as federal OSHA states or, and I'm kind of the odd man out. And, you know, Frank, you can hold off on your comments about me being odd. Um, <laughs> I refer to them as USDOL states. And then we have what are called state plan states where the state itself develops its program rather than use the federal program, you know, because of, you know, separations of powers and all that type of stuff. So we have a number of states, you know, California, Washington, Oregon, or three that come to mind, New Mexico, as you talked about earlier, being a state plan states. And so some of those state plan states and their corresponding laws are different than, you know, kind of how the federal system is set up with the attorney general's office. In those state plan states, does the U.S. attorney handle the criminal prosecution or is that something that's handled by whether it's the state attorney general or a, a local district attorney? So if it's a state state law violation, then that's typically handled by a state attorney general, right? If it's if it's based on a state law, you typically would not see a, a federal a Department of Justice lawyer prosecuting that state claim, at least not in isolation. Uh, so there's this case out of Washington that came out uh, not so long ago. Uh, state of Washington has a separate criminal statute, like you said, like many state plans, but it has a separate separate criminal statute just for violations of of WISHA, which is the the state uh, OSHA uh, standards and. And so an employer can be prosecuted under that standard, and that's for uh, uh, the same thing as the federal standard, right, for um, a willful violation of one of the safety standards in the state that leads to, to a fatality. In the case I'm talking about, this was a trenching fata- uh, fatality. But not only was this employee and this employer in this trenching case cited willful and charged under the state safety law for a criminal violation, but also the state brought penal uh, code charges against the individual for criminal negligence that led to an employee dying in a trench. The employer's lawyer made the argument of double jeopardy, right? Say, look, you can't charge him uh, under two separate statutes for the same thing which made a lot of sense to me, probably makes a lot of sense to you as you're hearing it. But actually the justice for the, the state court there said, well, uh, they're, they're different standards. And so they can be charged under both. And so in that case, the state uh, allowed uh, charges to, to go simultaneously under the WISHA criminal statute, as well as uh, the state uh, criminal statute, which was separate from the WISHA standard. So there was both a WISHA criminal standard and a state criminal law that that employer or the employer representative was dealing with in terms of criminal prosecution? That's exactly right. There was a general manslaughter statute that under under the state penal code, 
And then there was a specific worker safety statute um, dealing with manslaughter also, and both were allowed to proceed. Out of curiosity, were those charges in one proceeding or were those two separate proceedings? Uh, I think that's to be announced. I haven't seen the outcome of that yet. Textbook example of double jeopardy, although, you know, my, my sense of justice and, you know, we're criminal prosecutions fall out sometimes apparently doesn't align with how things actually are according to the courts, but it does seem like a classic textbook case of double jeopardy. So John, thanks for a good discussion today. To wrap up this segment, I'd say that failure to take proactive measures to reduce and or address hazards in the workplace can have dire consequences. I think that's obvious probably to most listeners. So if I were an employer, I would consider adopting a plan to routinely reevaluate and address hazards. Generally, I don't consider it to be a one-and-done type evaluation. It's an ongoing process. I'd also consider uh, retaining an outside expert or, or an outside consultant to, to put a fresh set of eyes on the workplace and to help spot issues that may have been missed internally. Uh, sometimes if you've seen the same workspace or same hazards over and over again, I think there's some kind of natural blindness to it. You don't see that hazard. And then I'd consider whether the existing safety plan addresses all of the applicable regulations and industry standards. Uh, as we've been talking about, the general duty clause requires an employer to take a look at uh, their industry and what the expectations are for the employers in the industry. And as such, as an employer, I would consider routinely evaluating the evolution of those standards of the industry applied in my workplace. Well, that's it for now. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we will be back next week with our third and final installment discussing these issues. Thanks much. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.